0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month we'll dive into a review of phenotypic plasticity in aquatic gastropods and test between two hypotheses of how the two-banded seabream recently got established in the Azores. Since the late 80s, there's been an explosion of literature on phenotypic plasticity in aquatic gastropods. Two groundbreaking studies published within two years of one another showed that the presence of predators can change the phenotype of the snails. These studies paved the way for hundreds more about phenotypic plasticity in this model system. Paul Bordeaux from Humboldt State University in California and his colleagues decided it was high time to assemble this newly amassed literature and see what, if any, general patterns they could glean from it about when and to what extent these responses occur. Here's Paul.
1: The way I think about phenotypic plasticity is an organism's ability to change some aspect of its phenotype, whether that be behaviour or morphology or life history, in response to changing environmental conditions
0: and why are aquatic gastropods such a common system for looking at phenotypic plasticity
1: one of the things about aquatic gastropods is that they are widespread and they've got the nice feature of the shell which shows an awful lot of phenotypic variation and geometrically it's quite simple so easy to measure and and examine And snails generally are quite hardy. You can bring them back to the laboratory and do experiments and so forth. And oftentimes you can go into the field and do manipulative experiments on them as well.
0: Well, can you give us just a sort of cartoon example of how this happens then in a snail?
1: So let's say you have a snail living on the shore. uh, And in that habitat, there's no predators around. So it can happily go about its business eating and growing. In another habitat, there might be a lot of predators, things like crabs that can eat the snail by opening its shell, cracking open its shell. In that habitat with the crabs, the snail might produce a thicker, more robust shell that protects it against um, being cracked open by a crab.
0: Even though both those sets of snails have you know, potentially identical genomes.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And so studies into phenotypic plasticity, they're quite common in the gastropods. And you, this month for Heredity, have done a fairly comprehensive review, um, which involved a systematic literature review and and also a meta-analysis. Um, first of all, how did you go about finding the papers for the review?
1: So we used this process of systematic review, which is somewhat new to ecological research or biological research where you use a certain set of search criteria to generate a universe of papers. So we went in and just searched um, very simply for papers on gastropods, phenotypic plasticity, and we used sort of variants on both of those terms. And then once we had the uh, search engines generate those databases for us, you kind of have to sift through each paper and, and make sure that you're getting a paper that's actually on phenotypic plasticity in gastropods and not a paper on, for example, the effects of plastics on snails. So that's the systematic review. And then the meta-analysis is a way to sort of combine the results of all the individual studies in a way that allows us to sort of test hypotheses or ask questions in a more general way.
0: Right. So what sorts of things were you hoping would come out of this meta-analysis?
1: In some ways, it was a bit exploratory, but we knew that we wanted to sort of compare and contrast marine and freshwater gastropods and the amount of phenotypic plasticity that those two groups of organisms show because they live in very different habitats, um, especially in terms of calcium carbonate availability, which is what they use to build their shells.
0: The main things that shocked me was that freshwater gastropods showed three times greater plastic responses than the marine counterparts.
1: Right, that was pretty shocking to us as well. We kind of had several alternative hypotheses for what to expect. The biggest environmental difference that we foresaw between marine and freshwater habitats is just the availability of calcium carbonate. In marine habitats, calcium carbonate is very available to gastropods to build their shells, in freshwater habitats, calcium carbonate is limiting. If it's difficult for the snail to sort of accumulate, transport, and deposit calcium carbonate, you only want to put more of that material into your shell if you absolutely need to. You don't want to do that if the predators aren't around because you don't want to spend that unnecessary cost. And so a way to avoid a cost like that is to only do it when it's necessary, that is when predators are around, so a phenotypic plastic response. And so you might then imagine that the freshwater gastropods would show more plasticity because calcium carbonate is limiting, perhaps more costly to put into a shell, and so you only do that then when you need to. Whereas in marine systems, if the calcium carbonate is more available, Um, it's maybe easier or less costly to add that material to your shell. And so you don't need to wait around for predators to come by. You can kind of do it constitutively or, or, or all the time. And so that kind of fits with the result that we got, although I don't think any of us expected the threefold difference that we saw. I should note that there's another alternative hypothesis for the result that we got, and that is that we tend to see that the magnitude of plastic responses is greater when organisms experience more environmental variation. And so you could argue that maybe the greater plastic responses in freshwater gastropods is because freshwater habitats are more environmentally variable than marine habitats. And really, we just don't know much about what environmental heterogeneity means and how it sort of is associated with plastic responses in the system. Um, We don't really have the data to address the hypothesis that heterogeneity is greater in freshwater systems compared to marine systems.
0: And there was another question that your review posed which was directly related to that environmental variability and that was you know was there a difference between the different larval dispersal modes because they were hypothesized to perhaps mean differences in environmental variability did did anything come out of that question
1: right exactly right so you know part of how you experience your environment is how far you disperse across that environment you might imagine that things with larger dispersal capabilities will experience more variation in their lifetime or across generations, and so you might then expect higher levels of phenotypic plasticity. That's what theory predicts, and there's actually been some data that support that um, in marine invertebrates even. But in our particular study, we did not find any differences in levels of plasticity between planktonic dispersers and crawl benthic dispersers um, in marine gastropods. And so this sort of was surprising to us as well, given that we've seen higher levels of plasticity in higher level dispersers in other marine invertebrates. But again, it gets back to this idea that we still don't really have a great sense for what environmental heterogeneity means from the perspective of the gastropod.
0: Now, there's, there's lots more in your review, and I'll just urge listeners to go and read it. But to try and cover a little bit more, what what sorts of trends did you see in the types of study that you looked at in terms of, you know, in the lab, in the, in the, in the wild? And, and where were these studies? And, you know, where were the biases? And where would you like to see people branching out and doing things a bit different?
1: That's a great point, too. Um, much of the work that has been done has been done in temperate systems. We have very little data from tropical habitats. Some of the most diverse assemblages of gastropods that there are are in tropical habitats. So, having more data from different geographic regions um, would certainly be beneficial, both for understanding, you know, when and where plasticity evolves, but also sort of getting at these hypotheses about calcium availability and how that might affect the expression of the plastic expression of gastropod shells. In temperate habitats, water is colder. Colder water it's more difficult to, again, accumulate and calcium carbonate and, and calcify your shell. Whereas in warmer tropical habitats, it might be easier to do that because in warmer waters, calcium carbonate is easier to accumulate and deposit.
0: And I suppose taking some of these studies out into the wild as well um, would get at another point in your review, which was that not many of these papers really assess the link between these plastic responses and the actual fitness consequences.
1: Yeah, that's another big gap I think that is important to mention. A lot of these experiments are laboratory experiments, carefully controlled, um, really well done. We've learned a lot about how the organisms respond what are the sort of environmental cues or conditions that promote those responses, but we know relatively little about the fitness consequences of those responses. We sort of make these adaptive arguments for these responses. You know, the gastropod makes a thicker, heavier shell. We assume that that's going to make it less vulnerable to a crab, but we really haven't done those tests where after we do the experiment and get the expression of the trait, we then test the performance of the trait
2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: In the presence of the predator, do those shells really work?
0: you 'd want to check if those thicker shelled snails just died of exhaustion instead of crab you know
1: <laughs> exactly i mean that 's part of why these traits are phenotypically plastic is that they 're costly to make, and so you 're only making them when you need to and but doing so there's there 's a cost to doing that as well as a potential benefit. And we really need to know what are the relative Benefits versus costs. Really understand the fitness consequences of these traits.
0: Okay, well, we're going to have to wrap up soon. But um, as you mentioned, um, this this review and a lot of the literature has been dominated by these predator-induced examples of phenotypic plasticity. I was wondering what other noteworthy examples of plasticity exist, and do you think they deserve more attention?
1: Yeah, certainly. There's numerous other examples. You know, gastropods are exposed to lots of different selective pressures, not just predators. I'll use marine gastropods as an example. They're living in these intertidal reefs where wave exposure or current strong water motion can affect their fitness as well, knock them off the rocks and so forth. Um, And we have a few examples that show that these snails can change the size of their foot, for example. The foot is what they use to cling to the rocks. And if they live in a wavy habitat, they make a bigger foot that clings to the rocks better. If they live in a more quiet water habitat, they don't need to make that big foot. Their foot's smaller. They're not quite as tenacious as, at clinging to the rock. That's probably much more widespread than we think. We only have a couple of examples of that. Um, but that's important, too, because it affects their fitness and these traits Um, These plastic traits like shell form and foot size are often correlated. So if you have a bigger, thicker shell, you might not necessarily have room for a bigger, heavier foot. Understanding how these other traits change in response to other selective agents in the environment can really tell us a lot about how these plastic traits evolve in concert and how natural selection acts on suites of traits rather than just individual traits.
0: Okay, so if there's a young student listening to this and getting excited by the idea of plasticity in gastropods, what, what would you suggest would be a novel experiment that they should you know, apply for funding for to go and do next year?
1: <laughs> well, I think I'm a marine ecologist, and we're very worried presently about ocean acidification. Um, ocean acidification makes calcium carbonate much less available for gastropods. And so what would be really interesting is to understand how predicted changes in ocean pH might affect how gastropods can phenotypically change their shell form. That was Paul
0: Bordeaux from Humboldt State University, California. Now, remaining in the aquatic realm, our next story this month is about a species of fish off the coast of the Azores. After his PhD in the UK, Italian biologist Sergio Stefani moved to this Atlantic archipelago to do his postdoc, where he later went on to set up a molecular lab, and it was an interesting time for the local fish. The two-banded seabream has only been reported there in the last 20 years, and interviews with local fishermen confirm that this species, which is very easy to identify, is indeed new to the island, in their memories at least. Interestingly, there is documentation of this species in the Azores from the late 19th century by a German zoologist called Franz Hilgendorf, but with no surviving specimens from that time, we'll just have to take his word for it. Regardless, now that this coastal species is once again flourishing in the Azores, Sergio wanted to know how it got there. I started off by asking him what makes the Azores such a special place for studying the phylogeography of fish.
3: Especially when it comes to coastal fishes, it becomes extremely interesting because it's a far-remote archipelago, very difficult to reach. If you consider that the nearest place is uh, the islands of Madeira, you also have a surface current pattern, which is against of any favorable establishment or a settlement of eggs and larvae of coastal fish that are present in, in Madeira. So mainly the, the North Atlantic currents branch that uh, actually reaches the Azores is heading towards Madeira and not vice versa and your arrival
0: on the azores as a biologist interested in fish was pretty well timed wasn't it because the t- the two-banded seabream not present for more than 100 years just turned up out of the blue about 20 years ago
3: it actually happened gradually and uh, we start having uh, the appearance of some uh, juveniles of these species year after year the juveniles became more abundant and slowly we start having also all the different age class So uh, it became a nice example to test for uh, recent colonizations. We could also evaluate the possibility that there was a a, a relict uh, populations hidden somewhere, which we were not able to detect uh, before then, and suddenly expanded to reach the the situation as it is now, in which you can actually see the abundance of this fish. So at that point, these two hypotheses were uh, equally valuable and we decided to test both to evaluate which one was the most probable one.
0: Okay, so you had these two main hypotheses about why these fish were here. There was either this relict population that was hidden and small and then there was a recent expansion or there was a recent colonisation event from the continent or from, an, uh, from another island.
3: Yes, th- these, these were the two hypotheses and we decided to test them uh, genetically. Of course, we had uh, two types of uh, expectations. In the case of uh, recent colonization, we were expecting to have some sort of genetic pattern from uh, the source populations, a level of similarity. On the other hand, if uh, that was a population which was very small sizes and uh, rapidly expanded, then at a certain point we expected to have uh, a strong genetic divergence from any neighboring uh, potential source site. Plus, with the demographical expansions, you would also expect to have. Uh, by genetic drift, uh, an increased form of, uh, of differentiation.
0: Okay, and so to get at this, you you did a fairly comprehensive analysis of mitochondrial DNA, uh, coding region of nuclear DNA, and uh, microsatellite markers.
3: Yes, we decided to go for uh, a three types of different markers which had different mutational rates, which means uh, if I use microsatellites and I find any difference, this is something that happens very recent, while... Uh, if it was so recent, it would expect much less differences detected on the more conservative genes. Likewise, if the differentiation was a, 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 um, much older, then even the more conservative uh, markers would have detected uh, this sort of um, pattern.
0: Well, let's hear about the differentiation in these different markers then. What do your results tell you? Was this an ancient population that's expanded or, or was this a recent colonization from somewhere else?
3: Yes, our results are um, strongly supporting recent colonizations due to the fact that uh, although we have um, a, a marked genetic differentiation, this one was not uh, corroborated by a unique. Features in the alleles as well as in the haplotypes to justify such a long-term separations. Therefore, we do not expect such pattern uh, expressed in a in a population that has been uh, relict and suddenly expanded. And you know, do you have an idea of where they came from? Uh, we think that uh, they came from uh, Madeira, for the simple fact that uh, having a, a better detailed. Uh, oceanographic informations on a smaller time scale, we could identify that during the, 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 the winter period, let's say from November to February, uh, there were uh, nice uh, images showing counter currents, sort of pulses of counter currents that could last uh, sometimes longer and sometimes uh, less long that uh, were actually heading opposite to the dominant currents Therefore, uh, going from Madeira towards the Azores. If these pulses were long enough, uh, they could have made it uh, safely to the Azores and therefore finding a suitable habitat, also settle and uh, and develop their own uh, population. Do you think this is anything to do with climate change? I wouldn't say yes, 100%. Uh, I, I would actually uh, more confident in saying that these kind of uh, events might have happened through time. But of course, this kind of uh, environmental situation, these uh, peaks in temperature and uh, slow raising in uh, average temperature of the oceans, might have favoured uh, these events and may have favoured the establishment of this coastal fish.
0: But does this story about the two-banded sea bream uh, and, you know, the colonisation and its association with changing environmental factors, I mean, does it, does it teach us any lessons about uh, the management of fisheries and, and conservation?
3: Yes, this is a, a very nice example of uh, how a fish that uh, is considered for us only coastal could make it such a big leap and reach the Azores. Uh, of course, in, in terms of conservation, there could be an issue in the case that while it's favouring some species to reach the Azores, other species might be affected and uh, actually we, we might lose them uh, uh, once for all.
0: That was Sergio Stefani. Join us again at the end of the month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening.